The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Thanks. Sure. Don't you just love Christmas? Yeah, it's okay. It's okay? Just okay? <laughs> it's a very nice holiday, like Fourth of July or Arbor Day. Are you comparing Christmas to Arbor Day? No, I'm not comparing them. They're both holidays, and they're both fine. Fine? Yeah, they're fine. Good morning, London, but it is Thursday, December 18th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. This is not right wing, this is just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Now, Today on the show, this is actually the last show of uh, 2008, and uh, we'll be back again in 2009, but for the next couple of weeks, you'll be hearing the proverbial, quote, reruns on the show. But uh, keep an eye on our website at uh, www.justrightmedia.org. You might notice some changes over the Christmas holidays and perhaps a few additions and, and bells and whistles that you might enjoy over the coming holiday season and certainly into the new year. Today on the show... Uh, And by the way, 519-661-3600 is the open line number you can call to get in. But today on the show, we want to talk about, uh, it's basically a a theme-oriented show, but we want to end it up being the last show of the year with a few uh, humorous anecdotes, some of the ones that you've been sending us thanks to um, our soliciting them from from you on the air. So we want to do a little wrap-up with the jokes on us, some of the anecdotes, uh, you know, wisdom, ideas of wisdom, little poems and things like that that you send us. But first, I want to talk about a trend that I think is going to be something we'll see a lot in the year 2009. And that refers to my other three themes I want to talk about. I want to talk about something I saw on CBC where they attacked Harper for having black and white views, believe it or not. And that some psychologists saying, well, that means he's a very uncomplex, very simplistic person. Well, since this show is about that, I want to address that very concept. And... Uh, Also, I think the bigger thing going on, especially with what has been going on in Parliament, is addressing why we aren't really getting the debate that we need. And I think the problem is, I look at it as the closed liberal mind. You just can't debate with a liberal. And I want to illustrate that today, both with the experiences of other people and some of my own. So, you know, over the past two weeks, and maybe during the last Canadian federal election somewhat, I might have been coming across as some kind of conservative and Stephen Harper supporter. And uh, although if you've listened to my past shows, I've been very critical of the conservatives and of the conservative history in this country and in this province. But in the context of last week's discussion, uh, specifically what I've been calling the blockhead coalition, I was on Harper's side. And uh, with the recently re-elected Harper conservatives having uh, you know, the results of the last election stolen from them, f- from what I consider, yes, it's legal, but it's an illegitimate coalition. 
their single overriding aim is to preserve their taxpayer-paid subsidies and to deny voters a choice or vote for their coalition, so-called coalition, during election time. Now, this might not be the message you want to hear during the holiday season, but I think it's an unavoidable issue that's going to confront us, uh, and it has been confronting us. And, and that's why my, I picked my theme today of being the left liberal mindset. It's almost like studying the anatomy of a closed mind, or why the left, broadly speaking, can't or will not debate ideas. Of course, the quick answer is because they have none, or they believe ideas are irrelevant, or they believe they're superior to you and may in other respects think that, uh, well, your opinions don't count, and I know better. But, uh, you know, or you could say why you can't argue or reason with a liberal New Democratic Green Bloc point of view, and uh, I think it's yet another reason it's appropriate to call them blockheads. Now, this past Sunday I was driving around town and happened to tune in to syndicated talk show host Roy Green, who in fact was discussing this very subject. And it's strange because just listening to it 10 minutes after I decided I was going to do it. And it was interesting to hear Roy himself during the course of his discussion and, and input from his callers reveal that, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but he said something to the effect, and it might almost be close to an exact quote, quote, I've been a long time small C conservative and find myself lately becoming a large C conservative, end quote. Now, I thought that was a very interesting way of expressing the direction towards which the sentiment of a great number of Canadians have been moving of late. And most interesting, Roy contrasted how his show, his own radio show, is run. Apparently, open line callers aren't pre-screened for content or opinion, and callers are free to disagree with them. And he noted that, uh, you know, the CBC, which of course is on the left side of the spectrum, pre-screens most of its on-air opinions expressed by members of the public, and a lot of them never go anywhere. And I have certainly had my own experiences in that regard, which I may touch on later. But first, I think we have to set a stage, and I, I was going to turn, first, of course, to define left and right and what, what is meant by that in the context of today's discussion. And then I want to bore on the experience of someone else who's had one very close to mine, and that happens to be, believe it or not, ABC News correspondent John Stossel, which I'll get to shortly. But first, uh, left and right, and I'm going to use something written by Ayn Rand way back in the 60s where, you know, she said when she talked about rightists and leftists, she says, uh, you know, quote, since today there are no clear definitions of political terms, I use the word rightist to denote the views of those who are predominantly in favor of individual freedom and capitalism, and the word leftist to denote the views of those who are predominantly in favor of government controls or socialism. As to the middle or center... I take it to mean zero, that is, no dominant position, a pendulum swinging from side to side, moment by moment. And then I checked out what she had to say on the subject of liberals, and this is this is actually in her, uh, what they have, there's a book called, um, you know, it's basically all the, the great quotes, the Ayn Rand lexicon, it's called. So you can actually look these things up by subjects. And under liberals, this is written, quote, the basic and crucial political age of our issue of our age, rather, is capitalism versus socialism, or freedom versus statism. For decades, this issue has been silenced, suppressed, evaded, and hidden under the foggy, undefined rubber terms of conservatism and liberalism, which had lost their original meaning and could be stretched to mean all things to all people. The goal of the liberals, as it emerges from the record of the past decades, is to smuggle this country into welfare statism by means of single, concrete, specific measures, enlarging the power of the government a step at a time, 
never permitting these steps to be summed up into principles, never permitting their direction to be identified or the basic issue to be named. Thus statism was to come not by vote or by violence, but by slow rot, by a long process of evasion and epistemological corruption leading to a fate accompli. The most timid, frightened, conservative defenders of the status quo, of the intellectual status quo, are today's liberals, says Rand. What they dread to discover is the fact that the intellectual status quo they inherited is bankrupt, that they have no ideological base to stand on and no capacity to construct one. Brought up on the philosophy of pragmatism, they have been taught that principles are unprovable, impractical, or non-existent which has destroyed their ability to integrate ideas, to deal with abstractions, and to see beyond the range of the immediate moment. Abstractions, they claim, are simplistic, another anti-concept. Myopia is sophisticated. Don't polarize and don't rock the boat are expressions of the same kind of panic, end quote. And you know, it's the same thing you hear today, only you hear it as, let's work together. Why can't we get along? And other variants of the same expressed fear. And it's the, guess who's saying that all the time? It's the members of the block and the other side of the house. And then concludes Rand, the majority of those who are loosely identified by the term liberals are afraid to let themselves discover that what they advocate is statism. They do not want to accept the full meaning of their goal. They want to keep all the advantages and effects of capitalism while destroying the cause. And they want to establish statism without its necessary effects. They do not want to know or admit that it is they who are the champions of dictatorship and of slavery. That's pretty strong language. And Basically, it's true. If you look at the, the philosophy of the left, that's what it's about. Rob Peter to pay Paul, Rob Peter to pay Paul, the solution to every single problem you could possibly put in front of them. And then they say the capitalists are, are the ones who go by the law of the jungle. Oh, wow. That, that's just a complete inversion of everything. Now, in his best-selling book, Give Me a Break, ABC's 2020 reporter John Stossel has a chapter. It's called um, The Left Takes Notice. And he wrote in there, and this is interesting because this experience he talks about is very much like my own experience that I've had with the media and with the left here in Canada. So uh, you'll hear some parallels later, but here's what he writes. He says, where I work in network TV and live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, they say conservative the way they say child molester. It's the worst thing to be called. Everyone here agrees. Conservatives are repressive, uptight, fearful of new things, and above all, indifferent to the suffering of the poor. People here talk about the far right, extreme right, hard right, religious right, unapologetic right, but never about a left. What you might call the left doesn't even exist in my neighborhood. It's just enlightened thinking to favor more safety and environmental rules, tougher gun controls, abortion on demand, and higher taxes to fund good government projects. Anyone who disagrees is seen as not just wrong, but selfish and cruel. <laughs> Here's an interesting story. Once at a dinner party, I found myself arguing, this is Stossel writing, that the welfare state perpetuated poverty. The other guests shrieked at me, and then my wife jumped in on their side. I was so dismayed by that, I threw a piece of cake at her, and it was a cake she had baked. I was upset because I'd spent years discussing these ideas with her and thought she'd come to see their value. But at that dinner party, I was an alien, even to my own wife. Leftist thinking is simply the culture I swim in. More poverty programs, more safety regulations. Who would not want that? Everyone I know wants that. When I question other reporters about bias, I get blank stares. It's like asking fish about water. What water? 
say the fish. <laughs> Stossel then uh, recounts a list of personal experiences he's had as a news reporter in opposing the views of the unadmitted left, and many of them would be funny if they weren't so tragic and destructive. But it is in his second book, uh, which was called Myths, uh, Lies, and Downright Stupidity, that 2020 reporter John Stossel makes an observation about what he calls his quote-unquote libertarian views in contrast with what he calls quote-unquote conservative views, and most importantly, where liberals and the left fit into this whole equation. And here's what he says, and this is right sort of in the conclusion of his book. Quote, liberalism has come to mean spending more on everything, speech police, failed poverty programs that reward dependency, a bigger nanny state telling us that we cannot eat fatty foods, workplace rules that stifle opportunity, and absurd environmental regulations. I want government to leave people alone, writes Stossel. I think people should be free to do anything they want as long as they don't hurt anyone else. I may disagree with their choices, but I do not think the state should take their choices away. If you want to put drugs in your body, burn a flag, or rent yourself out for sexual use, you should be free to do that. If people want to buy or sell a kidney, I say let them. If a man wants to have sex with another man, that should be his choice. These are not conservative ideas. Yet, and here's the key, conservatives are at least willing to talk about them. I am continually amazed, writes Stossel, at how generous conservatives are in debate. Even those who disagree with my ideas welcome me warmly at their conferences. The supposedly narrow-minded, quote-unquote, social conservatives politely hear me out. The liberals, by contrast, don't want to talk at all. When I wrote my last book, Give Me a Break, says Stossel, I assumed the high poobahs of the leftist media would be eager to debate my ideas, if only to demonstrate how foolish my arguments were, or to discredit the reporting of their misguided colleague who had gone over to the dark side, as one TV writer put it. But I was wrong, says Tossel. The conservatives were eager to have me. I got to discuss my ideas with dozens of talk show radio hosts, or talk show, yeah, talk radio hosts, and the stars of the Fox News Channel. They made Give Me a Break a bestseller, but the liberal media, CNN, NPR, and the New York Times basically held their noses and ignored me. Where was the open debate the liberals always praise? Mostly on conservative broadcasts. Few conservatives wanted to spend much time debating drug laws. Sean Hannity did, but at least they heard me out, writes Stossel. But liberals would not. There were a few exceptions. Robert Redford, of all people, flew him out to his Sundance Book Festival. Alan Combs grilled him on his radio program. And then he writes, Larry King eventually had me on. I was only on his weekend show, and he said he'd have me back on a weekday. I'm still waiting. There wasn't much openness in the open-minded liberal media. I found myself talking to conservatives. But that does not make me one of them. And so he concludes, if I'm not a liberal and I'm not a conservative, then what can I call myself? The word that comes closest, he says, is libertarian, but it's not a great word. And he doesn't know how right he is, but for other reasons. People don't know what it means. It's why many libertarians refer to themselves as, quote, classic liberals. But most people don't know what classic liberal means either. So what are my other choices, he asks. Volunteerist? Consensualist? Live and let livest? Actually, of those three, I kind of like the one in the middle the best, consensualist. But he says, I want the word liberal back. Today's liberals stole it and perverted it. They've changed it into a philosophy that advocates health police, high taxes, and speech codes, and despises the creative liberalism of free markets. Liberal just does not mean liberal anymore. 
My guest tonight, an ABC News correspondent, co-anchor of 2020. His latest book is Give Me a Break. Please welcome John Stossel. John, come on out. Congratulations on the new book. It's called uh, Give Me a Break there. You're uh, exposing the, uh, what do you call it there, cheats, scam artists, etc. Uh, uh, who, who, in your mind, who's the one group you'd really like to, to get at? Who, who, who's the next group uh, you're going to fly after, not, not the lawyers? What's the next thing you got going? Government. I mean, my favorite chart, and give me a break, page 131, if you can find it. I know. This chart. <laughs> I mean, this is so important. All Government, right. for most of the history of America, was small. For 170 years, it was relatively mm -hmm. tiny, less than 5% of the economy. Mm -hmm. Only in the last oh, that's 30 chart. years, but straight you up. Really, you really spent a lot of money on graphics here. That's, uh, <laughs> you went all out. That looks like uh, you used a real bick. This is 40% of the economy right. now. This has taken our money and our freedom. I mean, 40% of the economy. Mm -hmm. America did well when, we, when free people took care of themselves. We spend our money better than the government does. I have a picture in there of a $300,000 outhouse they built. Oh, that and must be one nice outhouse, though, I imagine. <laughs> it's, a nice, it's a nice outhouse, but no running water. But what, what would people give up? Is that true, no running water? It's an outhouse. When you, what, what, what do you think government could cut, though? People aren't going to give up their Social Security. They're not going to give up their Medicare. They're not going to give up their uh, uh, unemployment insurance. They're not going to give up any of that stuff. What, what should they do? We'll start with the Stossel rule. For every Sorry? new... It's my rule. All right. For every new law they pass, they have to repeal two old ones. And gradually, the economy will grow faster than the government. But can I can tell you the ones I'd like them to get rid of first is that sodomy thing. I mean, that's really... Okay. All right. We can get rid of that. All get right. rid of the Commerce Department, the Education Department. You would get rid of all these departments? So, yes, wait, they... wait a minute. Without regulation, we were run by robber barons. You know, th this whole idea that privatization is the answer, I mean, it's the answer for the Vanderbilts and the Morgans. I I'm not so sure it's the answer for, for everybody. Why would corporate interests be more uh, uh, efficient than government? That's why I wrote Give Me a Break, because I learned after bashing business for 20 years, the market regulates itself really well. The robber barons were not really robber barons. The ruthless competition means the good companies that make money uh, have to give us what we want. So there, there, there was no reason for the antitrust laws that monopolies uh, didn't actually exist? Is that where, uh... There was very little reason. Rockefeller lowered the price of oil. He made it, he saved the whales. You know what? King George uh, also helped out with the tea prices. You know, the whole thing is this. <laughs> I was with you up until that point. I mean, the idea that, that corporate interest somehow regulates itself, I mean, the markets are, are regulated a, as it is. But competition regulates the market. The competition, you have to do a good job here or you'll lose viewers. I'm on Comedy Central. I don't have to do <laughs> You do. You're on network. That's a whole other game. Bill Gates got rich giving us software we wanted. Companies get rich giving us better cars, better supermarkets. The cheaters don't get away with much. I was having trouble finding true national scams to do on 2020. There are some Enrons, but they're the exception. The exception? Yeah. How many Enron WorldCom? It's a $10 trillion economy. How often does that happen? It looks like all the time. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't? All, all right. I need, you know what I need? I need to be given some breaks then. That's what I need. That's right. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming by and discussing the book. It's always nice to see you. Give me breaks on the bookshelves now. John Stossel, everybody.
I don't think the government should be in the poverty business. I think that's for private people and churches and institutions and individuals wow. to do. And that government should be the agency of last resort, not the first. I wonder whatever happened to social values and a little bit of social responsibility. I'm speaking uh, of social there, responsibility. You know, to say, well, you're poor, you're just going to have to make it alone. I didn't say that. I think, I think Canadians, you know, really need to be engaged in this discussion Paul, of poverty. Paul, about. I, I'm going to talk now um, so that, that we, we do maybe define. And, and I think I've had some of my own experiences with the media. And um, like John Stossel, when I first got involved in political activity, I too thought we lived in an open society and it craved a real debate on the issues. My own personal experience with the media here in Ontario and Canada was virtually a mirror image of the stories that Stossel tells in his two books with different players, different names. One thing I learned from the outset uh, when I first naively began to publicly debate ideas in the political arena is that and I wasn't planning this, but I was always the polarizer. Without even trying, I would end up uh, dominating every debate in which I participated. And I don't mean by uh, speaking out of turn or shouting or being given more time to speak or anything like that, but by virtue of the fact that all of the other debaters, even if you had five or six parties, they'd always pick on me and my ideas as the goalpost against which to contrast theirs. I understand today why that's so because they couldn't contrast them against anybody else because they all basically were wishy-washy and all over the place and there was nothing clear to attach themselves to. But it never ceased, never ceased to amaze me. You know, there I would be, by all accounts, some unknown representative of some unknown, you know, tiny political party that, you know, deserved no particular attention. And yet I was constantly chosen as the barometer of what the right and wrong thing to do in a given case would be. Oh, you don't want to do what Mr. Metz suggested over there, talking about free markets and just let the market rule and blah, blah, blah. And then the left would come back and I would be the goalpost each time my name was used constantly. And it just, I would, it would amuse me. And I was quite taken aback by the repeated experience, not only with myself, but then I saw it with other Freedom Party candidates and other Freedom Party reps in political forums. The same thing happens every time and they report back to me like it's, it's just unbelievable. But the point I want to make before I give you some examples of what I'm talking about is that after all these experiences I can only conclude that Canadians in this country do not get a dialogue in this country. There's no two sides to the debate. The problem is we get a, a one-sided mo monologue just like Canadian uh, historian Joe Armstrong so eloquently demonstrated in his book, uh, Farewell the Peaceful Kingdom. I don't know if you remember that one. But basically you've got in this country two sides arguing uh, the same philosophy of state control but merely differing in what or who they want to control. That's it. Or tax. Or run out of town. Or ignore if they can. <laughs> and of course that's where I come in. Now I'm the guy they like to ignore. You know, I couldn't possibly find enough time within the allotted time for this show to itemize how many times I've had the experience of being invited to speak at a public event sponsored by, let's say, the left, okay, and then told that, yeah, you were great, everybody loved you, they thought you were great, you know, and the audience loved it, etc., etc., and I would never be invited back, which is reminiscent of John Stossel's experiences referred to earlier. Uh, I, I realized what they were trying to do, or, you know, at first they figured, well, okay, here's a guy, well, I'll use him as a target, and then I just didn't fall down that easy, so they weren't going to call me anymore. But uh, when I've been invited to speak to groups that you'd call on the right or on media shows hosted by those who would generally be um, identified on the right, 
Even when they strongly disagree with my viewpoints on certain issues, I have uh, always been welcomed and invited back. One example I've cited on this show frequently is my appearance, uh, you know, constant appearances on the Crosswords television system, which not only leans, I would say, a bit to the conservative side of most issues, but is generally of a very religious bent as well. Not exactly my two uh, fortes in that sense. And of course, as you all know, especially locally here, there's always broadcaster Jim Chapman, with whom I debated and disagreed (laughs) with on a number of issues for like over 10 years. But at his invitation... Uh, something I have yet to experience from anyone on the left. It just does not happen. Now, one person on the left who's an exception to this rule in the sense of uh, at least joining the debate um, was, of course, uh, London lawyer Jeff Schlemmer, who also appeared with me and Jim over the years, uh, both at CJBK and later right here at CHRW. But uh, those kind of lefties are free, few and far between. And I am reminded, you know, my, my, my earliest history, I, when, I, when I jumped into politics, I didn't have a clue what I was jumping into or what to expect or what kind of responses people would give to what I thought were pretty common sense, straightforward, yes, black and white ideas, we'll deal with that a little, short, a little later. But um, I remember one of the first events where I spoke to a huge crowd, and it was right here at uh, University of Western Ontario, probably back in around 19, I'm guessing, 85. And it was a United Nations conference, and they were talking about things like foreign aid and free trade, and I was put on a panel. And by the way, it was attended by thousands of kids from around Ontario during the summer holidays. And they were high school kids and, and uh, I guess, earlier college kids who stayed here for a week for a host, uh, a complete host of conferences. And um, I was one of the speakers. I guess we were basically talking about free trade versus foreign aid. And on one side, the panel on my side, there was me and Rory Leishman of the London Free Press. I think that's when I met him. And on the other side were two members of of the NDP. And um, the person who was organizing the event was someone you might know, Bill Paul. And Bill Paul, he's known as a town crier here in town. He still does a show over at 6X uh, Radio as as well, over at Fanshawe Radio. And um, he hosted, he called me after the event, and he said they did a survey. And... I forget how many speakers they had over the seven, eight-day thing. And of, say, 50 or 60 speakers, I was one of five or six that the kids said that they remembered. And it's just another one of those examples. So I figured, well, that's great. I guess I'll be invited back for the next one, eh? (laughs) Well, 1985 was the last one I did, and I know the kids loved it. It was a lot of fun. And, of course, I took an approach that was totally different. It was a really interesting uh, situation I was in. But... um, it's just typical of everything that happens. Uh, same thing happened. 1987, I appear on a CBC radio interview. And uh, it was my first experience with CBC. At that time, I was, uh, Freedom Party was very young. I was only like three years old. I was 84 or 5. Yeah, three years old. There was an election on. I was the party leader. And as such, you know, the, the, the government bodies and radio stations give you their, quote, free time or whatever they call it. They taped an interview with me. Really interesting, too, because a studio in downtown Toronto, CBC, is, uh, it's like, at least at that time, it was like a stage. You, were, you, you went down on a stage, there was, you could have fit an audience of a few hundred people in there, but there were probably maybe 10 or 20 people there. Anyone could walk in off the street, just sit there and watch it. And, um, but they pre-taped the interviews, and they did an interview with me. I don't, know, I don't recall who the DJ was or whoever, but after they did it, they wanted to do 
a second one. And then we take, took a second one right then and there. And um, I thought that was interesting, and they, they, they were quite excited about everything I had to say. I was just giving them the bang, 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 right? And uh, they said, yeah, we're going to have you back. And, of course, that hasn't happened since. When was that? That was 1987. Let me read. Okay, they haven't got back to me yet. But what did happen was when they broadcast uh, the radio interview, and uh, it was during a provincial election, I have to tell you, that was one time our phones rang off the hooks. People, I got more members and more supporters out of that two-hour period there than you could ever get in another 10 years, and that's probably why we are not invited back to those kinds of things. had the same experience in 1990 when I was still party leader and appeared in Toronto on an, uh, among with all the other party leaders, including none other than Jim Harris of the Green Party. That's where I got, to, got a chance to meet him. And I still have that uh, videotape, by the way. I'll be playing you some clips uh, uh, from in, uh, in the future sometime. Assuming the equipment here uh, <laughs> is working. <laughs> but um, just some hilarious stuff in there. But that was hosted by the late David Shatsky, who at the time, um, you know, was an up-and-coming interviewer and radio and talk show host. And uh, he gave me the same reaction. He said, oh, I want to have you back later. And uh, then, of course, I never hear from them because they get, they get the word. Another, another interesting thing that happened uh, in terms of the media uh, back around, uh, this was 1998, there was a big Unite the Right conference held in Toronto sponsored by a whole bunch of other groups to which I was one of the many invited because I was, of course, affiliated with the Freedom Party. And uh, very, this was still before the, the Conservatives had realigned and all that kind of stuff. And um, what happened there was there was, a, I think it was a two-day event, and... Um, a couple of speakers before me uh, was uh, Michael Corn of all people. Of course, he was considered on the right. I think he's a little drifting more leftward, but we'll talk about that one later. But he said, and I quote at, the, uh, at that event, he said, quote, if conservatism means letting the market rule human affairs, Corn said, then I am increasingly uncomfortable calling myself a conservative. So basically, he, he was there at a Unite the Right conference saying that if uh, we believe in the marketplace and the free market, uh, well, I'm not going to be a conservative anymore. And, uh, and by, by the way, that was quoted out of the Toronto Star coverage March 21st, 1998, under uh, a headline, uh, Unite the Rights Down Market Element, uh, by Thomas Walcom with a subheading. Oh, I'm sorry, I was the party president then, party leader then was Lloyd Walker. He got the heading there. If the right united, they'd want to get rid of guys like us, Freedom Party leader Lloyd Walker. But I was also quoted as the president, and it says here, quote, Freedom Party President Robert Metz echoed the dilemma from the other side. How, he asked, could anyone expect someone like him to be in the same party as Michael Corrin? A real alliance of all right-wing forces, said Metz, would be a metaphysical impossibility. That sounds like me, doesn't it? And, uh, end quote. And so you wonder where I get my opinions on coalitions and uniting the right and watching all these various groups trying to work together when really they can't. And uh, definitely on future shows, you will be hearing excerpts of that debate between myself and Michael Corrin, which took place on his show, uh, Michael Corrin, live one year later. I once again found myself there as a center of gravity, uh, basically around which all the other opinions uh, rotated. And possibly one of my, this was a, now, again, that was a more of a right-wing group, and they really disagreed with a lot of what I had to say, and yet I was welcome there. 
and I was invited back. In fact, the guy who organized it, you might know him because he's a bit of a, a loose cannon out there in the West, was a fellow named um, oh, Craig Chandler. And he ran a business or a, a, a group called the group, Progressive Group for Independent Business, which you may have seen some of their once in a while uh, billboards around when they would campaign on various issues, kind of like the NCC in a bit of a way, but more business oriented. And I was invited to speak for his group, again, after that other, other incident. Uh, and this was in Hamilton, and I was speaking at a businessmen's luncheon. And uh, what was very interesting about that was uh, it was an evening luncheon, uh, a lot of business people there, people I hadn't met before, and here I am, basically a total stranger. I'm this, the keynote speaker of the evening. And my theme for the night was why basically the businessman is always painted as the evil guy, right? And I can't get into that today, but that was my subject for the night. And as I'm giving the speech there, I notice uh, I didn't get to the place was so quiet. I didn't, you know, you're up there, you're talking, you don't, are, are, am I boring these people? Uh, what are they doing there? It's getting kind of quiet. And, and my speech went for about an hour, hour and 10 minutes. Well, by gosh, when that speech was over, and this is maybe the only time this has happened to me, that room got up and started clapping for me and did not stop clapping. It was one of those situations where I think they kept going for eight, eight minutes maybe, and I exaggerate not. I was almost embarrassed by it. People were coming up, shaking my hand while everybody just kept clapping and clapping and clapping, and they thought it was great. And I had a number of people approach me, yeah, I'm going to support you. You're great. I love what I, have, I hear you say, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, never got invited back to another event, <laughs> never got any of the support. Because that's the way it is out there. You know, people who have all their various interests, even if they like what you say, if their interest is different than yours, if their power base is different, they're not going to be supporting you. And that's a lot of what you see happening in politics. And one of the reasons I want to alert you to these kinds of things. Same thing happened, too, way back in 1997 when Left, Right, and Center started with Jim Chapman and Jeff Schlemmer over at CJBK. I remember after the very first show we did, which was on poverty, uh, Jim gets on the radio the next day, uh, and I was just there as a guest. Didn't know it was going to be a long-lived thing. I thought it was a one-time appearance. And uh, says that the station got more calls than they had ever gotten on anything as long as he's been in radio. Now, in his case, again, my point, I got invited back. It, you know, Even though he might not have agreed with everything I said, it's, it, it's just kind of like that. And uh, had the same kind of experiences at TV London. Uh, you know, here, Here's TV London. They're, they're in London, London South there. They're two blocks from the offices of Freedom Party, Freedom Party International. Like, I mean, we have huge audiences around the world. We're everywhere. They have never once in 20 years even sent somebody over two blocks to say, hi, hey, can we do a feature on you? Anything interesting going on here? No, that's the kind of media you get because, of course, we're on the right. They've, they've, every other wacko group gets all kinds of attention. In fact, I was told by one DJ once the reason we don't get covered is because we're too reasonable. Well, there you go. And, of course, a long-term experience I had that I no longer have, and I keep getting people asking me, how come I don't see your articles in the free press anymore? How come I don't see your letters in the free press anymore? Well, I'll tell you, when I first got politically active, I never wrote a letter in my life to uh, an editor of anything until I got politically active, and this was all around the same time, late 70s, early 80s, and Blackburn was still the Mr. Blackburn was still running the paper way back then, and it was had not quite switched. But as when the paper was still, quote, on the right, I could write a letter to them, and it might be four pages long type. They would 
print the whole damn thing, and there'd be debates back and forth, and you could go back and and do a do a, do a debate, you know, and and they would edit, but they were more than reasonable because they would edit not for space, but because oh, you said this point here, so you don't need to say this point again. That's the way it was, and so they sort of went from a 100% publishing <laughs> rate uh, of my letters when they were more right-wing, down to 0% publishing rate when they became more left-wing. I used to send them, I think I had a flurry of I don't know how many articles and, and letters I had sent, not one of them even got a mention. So I just stopped writing them because I got the message. I know what they're telling me. So uh, that's another experience with the left, okay? And uh, speaking of the free press, too, it was interesting. During the last provincial election, okay, the London Free Press sends a reporter down to our headquarters for the better part of an afternoon, spends a whole afternoon there. He's talking to me, talks to leader Paul McKeever, interviews us, and then he goes and walks around the whole neighborhood with us while we go door to door, proving every point, by the way, that we made to him at the office. We said, here are the major issues that people are concerned with. He kind of looked at us very disbelievingly, but was totally converted when we went door to door, and every person we met hit every issue that we had brought up. And um, so he went that, you know, and... We we sat for hours, you know, and by the way, the people uh, who were talking at the, at the door when we went around, they didn't know he was a free press reporter or anything like that because we were asked not to tell anybody. But he took notes, and he came back to our office and took more notes, and then when he left, his article or whatever feature he was working on was never published, never showed up. Um, that was the end of that. I don't know what the whole exercise was. I didn't know the free press could pay people to uh, do articles like that and do a lot of writing um, and then not even publish. Where do you get your value out of that? And I remember one election, too, TVO, who was supposed to give equal time to all the smaller parties, did with all the smaller parties, except us. <laughs> I think it was about two, three elections. And they said, oh, no, we, we had a special on. You, you're not getting on. Too bad for you. But, um, of course, the issue is it's not about me and it's not about my ideas and my notions that's causing all the fuss. It's because of what I'm saying. It's about capitalism. It's about freedom and who's associated with it and who's not associated with it. That's why they hate Harper so much because they associate him with capitalism even though he's not the guy. (laughs) He got the wrong guy. And capitalism is the issue that polarizes all of the debates. And if you want to ever prove that for yourself, just walk into any left-wing crowd and try it. You will be in control. Totally. And which brings us back full circle to what's been happening in our currently prorogue parliament here in Canada lately. And, you know, all signs point to the fact that for the foreseeable future in Canada, I think we're going to be faced with a particularly hostile, irrational, and closed-to-debate mindset of the various leftist political parties and organizations. So I think you better get used to it. But do recognize it for what it is. And, you know, if you thought Al Gore's, you know, the debate is over on climate change, if that kind of closed mindset was bad, it's uh, but a minor example of the left's bankruptcy and its ability to to debate or willingness to face a debate compared, you know, to the antics of what's going on in Parliament right now. Now, if you think back to our show where we discussed the three rules about principles and compromises back on December 4th, You'll understand why the coalition, which it seems to be dying anyway, neither wishes to have a serious uh, polarized debate nor wishes to face the electorate in a federal election. And uh, most importantly, you'll understand why they can't win a debate and must therefore endlessly avoid it or terminate it. It's kind of a story as old as uh, left and right itself. But um, there you go. What can you say about that? Now, 
I had also brought a clip from CBC. Oh, oh we are going to break. Okay, so I guess we are taking a break right now, and we'll be back after this break, and then we'll talk about black and white and the low complexity of Simplistic Harper. Dr. Vickers has said that she wants to bring this debate down to reality. And by that, she really means she wants to bring this discussion down to an unphilosophical level. Well, I have news for you. This is a philosophical topic. You were invited here to discuss philosophy. You were invited here to discuss the morality behind your views. And I'm expecting you to do that, and the audience is expecting you to do that. I'd like to say that this is the fifth year in a row that I've debated as socialists around this time of the year in a format similar to this. And I've had it with you people. I really have had it with you people. Why it is that I can't get into an intellectual and philosophical debate with you people uh, escapes me. Uh, every time I come into a debate, I'm faced with euphemisms, sarcasms, ad hominem arguments, vagueness, evading the point, appealing to emotion, and I've simply fed up with this. <laughs> For you to come in here and intimate that we are appealing to childish wishes, that we are offering seductive ideas, uh, that we are uh, that we are advocating some utopian un future in the unknown, un uh, some unknown time in the future that some of us, but certainly not the rightists, believe in peace, that we are actually advocates of McCarthyism, that we are advocates of torture, that is totally inexcusable. We have been standing here arguing for the repudiation, the initiation of physical force in human affairs. How can you say that we are an advocate of torture, McCarthyism, and all of these things? Are you not hearing what we're saying? Now this debate is a serious on a serious issue, and the essence of the issue, as far as I see it, with regards to socialism versus capitalism, capitalism properly defined as we've defined it, is the role of the initiation of physical force in human affairs, which you have not addressed yourself to. The truth of the matter is the state is a coercive institution, and you, as socialists, are advocating the coerced imposition of your view of the beautiful society on everybody here. That's the truth. You have the gall to have some view of the way men should live and be prepared to force it on everybody through the use of the state. And that is totally uh, immoral, and that is the issue that we are discussing here, and you have failed to address that issue completely. Hopes for less partisan times in Ottawa had a short life, mere days. In a fiscal update, the Harper government slipped in an announcement that parties would lose federal subsidies within four months. We cannot ask Canadians to tighten their belts during tougher times without looking in the mirrors. Today our government is eliminating the $1.75 per vote taxpayer subsidy. 
To opposition parties, it was an open declaration of political war. For to simply scrap funding in the midst of a recession would effectively eliminate their ability to prepare for an election. In Harper's case, even admiring allies worry he's often exceptionally controlling, even domineering in setting goals. Those are the types of leaders who tend to be very much combat-oriented uh, towards opposing parties. Tom Preston is a political psychologist specializing in personality profiles of American presidents. He's also interested in Harper as a very intelligent leader, but one typical of those called low complexity. High complexity people are the people that see the shades of gray. Uh, you know, they, they, they differentiate a lot in their environment. Less complex people tend to see the world in more absolute terms, more black and white terms. And the upshot of this for leaders is that it affects how they set up their advisory systems, it set up how they use information. So less complex leaders um, like Harper, uh, who don't really have much diversity among their advisors, they tend to be very, very rigid ideologically they tend to surround themselves with people who have similar views uh, they don't have in other words they just don't have their antennae up I mean leaders like this tend to not recognize some of the potholes some of the the dangers that are lurking ahead because they're just so focused you know I was, I was listening to CBC radio or t radio television on actually it was December 4th it was the same day that uh, Parliament was prorogued uh, two weeks ago today I think that is pretty close and I heard a clip on CBC television, and they featured a fellow named Tom Preston who was presented as a political psychologist who was, his specialty was American presidents, but he had a particular interest in, in Stephen Harper. And uh, he described Harper as simplistic, and uh, you know, he has very low complexity and black and white views. And he says, you, you know, you should be thinking in terms of shades of gray. I had, I had the clip for this. You could hear all these words directly. But, and then he says, what's the problem with being, having black and white views? He says, well, it affects how you set up your advisory and information systems. You tend to be rigid ideologically and surround yourself with people of similar views. And then you become so focused and you don't have your antennas up and all this kind of utter, utter nonsense. And I was listening to this and I'm thinking, holy cow, imagine if I was silly enough as a founder of a political party created for the purpose of, say, promoting freedom and capitalism, hmm, sound familiar, that's what I do, to follow this nonsensical suggestions that this gentleman has, has made, Tom Preston, political psychologist. Uh, that would mean I would have to have, say, in my association, in my group, uh, uh, that is there for the purpose of, say, promoting capitalism. But in order to be gray and to do all the things, I'd have to have a communist, a socialist, a liberal, a conservative, a libertarian, a family coalition member, a Green Party member, a bloc member, uh, maybe a Nazi, why not, a marijuana party rep, an NDPer, and quite possibly Jack the Ripper himself, why not? Where, where, is there any morality in there at all? Is there anything that matters if it's all just numbers and, and all these interests? Because that is a perfect example of the gray that this Mr. Expert thinks is the color of complexity, okay? Uh, but the complexity is this, that taken individually, each party I just cited takes a black and white view of politics. There's no, there's no other way. It just doesn't work any other way. To accept one, and that'll be funny. To a greenie, for example, everything's about the environment, and you just can't get them off that track. Everything's about the environment. If you talk to a family coalition member, it's abortion, and boy, do they have a black and white view on that issue. Try and tell me that's a gray view. 
To a libertarian, it's all about anti-state or no state or anarchy. To a marijuana party head, every problem from health care to our energy needs can be solved by growing pot. <laughs> you know, that's, that's their black and white view of the world. To an NDPer or socialist or communist, it's all about bringing down the bourgeois, the middle class, and promoting the welfare state. And to a liberal, it's also about promoting the welfare state, but also to end any debate on the matter. But of all the parties I've mentioned, the irony is, and this is a great irony, is that the Conservative Party is the party most of compromise. The very thing that, uh, you know, Mr. Preston on CBC suggested Harper abandon his black and white views to become. So I, I sit there and go, my goodness, do they know what they're talking about? Now, given that this show, Just Right, is all about presenting what I like to jokingly say is a black and white view of you know, well, life in general, and politics specifically, and philosophy specifically. It's just, I find that the black and white views of those who are convinced that black and white views are simplistic or of low complexity, uh, you know, those kind of views are neither simplistic nor complex. They're just not. <laughs> Gray views are, as Ayn Rand phrased it, as we wrote, you know, read earlier, a zero, a nothing. And that's what uh, Tom Preston, with his comments, had added to the debate. And basically, when tested against reality, this viewpoint is invalid, it is wrong, and demonstrably so. So please allow me to demonstrate. The complexity of gray can only refer to its constituent particles, which would be like black and white. If you saw some gray powder created by mixing black and white, which is what's being suggested, then at the microscopic level, at the complex level, we would clearly see the black and white individual particles. But by stepping back and not seeing the black and white particles and seeing only gray, the complexity vanishes and is replaced by a blind simplicity which does not wish to deal with the complexities. And yet another irony of the whole, uh, you know, everything's gray, should be in the middle of the road, nothing's black and white. Totally false. So black and white views are, are simplistic, are they? Okay, in ideological terms, what does black refer to? It refers to that which does not correspond to reality and is unreasonable, hence the darkness, the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of evil. White refers to that which does correspond to reality and is reasonable, hence enlightenment, shining a light on reason or the good. Now, those who argue that black and white viewpoints are simplistic, in other words, in other words, what they're saying is the view that, that you, if you, the knowledge rather, that some things are right and moral, while other things are unjust and immoral, they say that's simplistic. Now, the people who hold that view, they fail to understand that the most complex consequences arise out of duality. It's amazing. From the number two, from two alternatives, from two polar opposites. Our whole world and our, all our society operates on a simple black and white terms in this reference. If you're talking in metaphysics, you've got reality or unreality. That's your two choices. There isn't a middle switch. Epistemology, you're either working on reason or not reason, which could be mysticism, faith, any other sorts, as a means of obtaining one's knowledge. In ethics, it's either good or evil. Can't be middle of the road. There's no, well, it's partly evil, partly good. Morality, you're either right or wrong. Reasoning, it's either logical or illogical. Can't, there's no middle switch. Rational, irrational. Uh, in politics, you've got freedom or tyranny. There is no middle. In economics, you've got capitalist and statist, and there is no middle. Now, people like to say, oh, yeah, we're in the middle. We got a, we've got a mixed economy, or, you know, so we're middle of the road. No, that's not what we have at all. When people say that there's a mix of that kind of thing, it's just like the powder. 
the mix is not uh, some center position. The mix is that some things, some of the particles in our society, say healthcare, is 100% communistic, whereas maybe some electronic production is pretty close to 100% capitalistic. That doesn't mean that each of those industries are somewhere halfway in between. It's a completely misleading term, and it's no, and it, and it clouds the idea, and does not let us distinguish that. Note that the, all the things that um, are free work, and the things that are government controlled don't work and are dysfunctional. And, and and when you toss everything into the gray, then you can't distinguish between the particles that work and the particles that don't work. And uh, that's the whole problem with gray. I mean, political position, you've got left and right. Even if you're dealing with physics and electricity, you've got positive negative. Applies to attitudes, too. Uh, gender, male and female, and gravity and magnetism, you've got north and south. That's where we've got our words, polarization of the issues, which, of course, the left and all the, the lefties don't want a polarization. They want the gray. They want the middle. And even just a basic switch, on, off, action, stop, go, position, in, out, consent, yes and no. So if you can think of a middle road or a middle option on any of these examples I've just cited, please uh, do not hesitate to let me know. I'd like to know how you might describe that. And if everything in the world did not operate in black and white terms, then nothing would function, plain and simple. give you a perfect example that most of you are very well aware of. Take your average computer, and you're looking at it, you, sit, you see the screen in front of you. Now, if we applied, uh, you know, that political experts notion of you know politics <laughs> to a physics your computer screen would always be solid gray or would never be you'd never see anything you'd never see a picture of things it would be useless and you couldn't operate without the extreme polar opposite forces that make all things function and work everything on your computer is a consequence of a black and white digital process and nothing more computers are nothing more than billions of little switches all cycling back and forth between on and off no middle switch Although they're talking about that in computing now, but that's a whole different <laughs> issue. Uh, no, no positive, negative, whatever you want to call it. But, but what you see on your computer is a pattern so complex that you cannot, it would defy anyone's conscious analysis. You couldn't do it. You couldn't even calculate in your own mind all the difference uh, on-offs which is going on just in a one-second clip of a video on your computer. That's 30 frames. Every little pixel on your machine is turned on and off at least 30 times every second in, this, in the cycle. But it, that's what gives it its complexity, not that it's not working on a black and white system. It's just that when people are trying to take in everything and understand how every little pixel on the screen works, then life gets very complex, and you shouldn't be doing that in the first place. You want things to be simple. And, you know, if all those switches were set to the center, which would not be possible in any case, then you get this gray screen, and, and you just couldn't set the switch to the center. And, in fact, to witness in Canada the uh, polarization that the parliamentary crisis has engendered in, in the Canadian population is a marvelous thing, isn't it? I've never before seen Canadians so excited and involved in what is happening in our parliament, and that is, too, a consequence of a little touch of black and white being entered into our political system. But that's about all I've got to say on black and white, and I thought we've got about 10 minutes left. I wanted to get to a few uh, of... Uh, some of the jokes that you've been sending us. We, d we did this a few, weeks, uh, a few weeks ago. We did almost half a show just uh, reading some jokes and uh, little funny things that you have been uh, sending us. I'm just going through a list here. I won't have time to do them all. But there are some good ones here. Anybody here ever uh, daydream? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody? 
Yeah. How many are daydreaming right now? Be honest. Let's see if your hands. I'm a daydreamer. I always daydream. I always end up in these embarrassing situations because I daydream. Like the other day, I'm on the subway, just minding my own business, daydreaming. And while I'm daydreaming, I hear the voices in my head. And they're telling me to kill, kill, never stop. So I'm just about to take out this young family. And right before I kill them, I wake up and I'm like, oops. That's not the voices in my head telling me to kill, kill, never stop. That's the voice of the subway guy saying, Keel, Keel Street, next stop. Can you imagine if I killed them? I would have been so embarrassed. into the doctor's office. The doctor tells him you need an operation. The guy says, I want a second opinion. The doctor says, okay, you're ugly too, but boom, boom. Was that funny? No. Data, you spoiled the joke. I mean, it could have been your timing. My timing is digital. <laughs> what? That's funny. Why? It would take too long to explain. Tell me another joke. A monk, a clone, and a Ferengi decided to go bowling together. Commander Data, report to the main bridge immediately. We'll be back. Bring new jokes. Here's one, uh, and, I, and if I don't get to yours, I know there's a lot of people sending us stuff here. AJ, Andy, Danielle, uh, Chad, um couple others i haven't got them all but if i don't get to yours don't worry we will do them in the continuing future when we're back next year and um by the way before i forget um i know this is the last show of the season i do want to thank all the folks around the station here uh, for putting up with me for another year it's amazing that i'm still here <laughs> and that includes uh, michael brown program director and uh, taff who's in our studio there and all the people that have helped on the show in the past including Grant Stein, station manager so uh, have a great season and, and we'll hope to see you again in the new year. But first let's say let's uh, leave the year with a few smiles on our faces, shall we? Here's something sent to us, this is uh, called the original computer, funny I was just talking about a computer and this goes back a while there's actually a couple of things here sent to us by handy don't know if i can do both of them but i'll do the computer one right now he says uh here's a little thing about a computer he says it's called the original computer quote memory was something you once lost with age an application was for employment a program was a tv show a cursor used profanity a keyboard was a piano a web was a spider's home. A virus was the flu. <laughs> a CD was a bank account. A hard drive was a long trip on the road. And a mouse pad was where a mouse lived. And if you had a three-inch floppy, well, you just hoped nobody ever found out. <laughs> I guess that's a guy thing, is it? <laughs> okay. Here's one... Uh, 
Sad, sad Christmas news from Ottawa. There will be no nativity scene in Ottawa, Canada this year, it reads. The Supreme Court has ruled that there cannot be a nativity scene in Canada's capital this Christmas season, not for any religious reasons. They simply have not been able to find three wise men in the nation's capital. There was no problem, however, finding enough asses to fill the stable. (laughs) And as we are in the middle of a financial bailout package, and uh, the crisis is perpetually upon us, and will be for quite some time, you just watch, have you ever wondered what doctors might think about our bailout package? Well, somebody sent me a little list of uh, what they do think about it. And you might wonder, well, what the heck are doctors thinking about uh, our bailout packages for? Well, this might answer that question for you. And here's what the doctor's opinion of the financial bailouts are. Well, the allergists, uh, they voted to scratch it. And the dermatologists advised not to make any rash moves. The gastroenterologists had sort of a gut feeling about it, but the neurologists thought the administration had a lot of nerve, and the obstetricians felt they were all laboring under a misconception. The ophthalmologists considered the idea short-sighted. The the pathologists yelled over my dead body while the pediatricians said, oh, grow up. The psychiatrists thought the whole idea was madness, while the radiologists could see right through it. And the surgeons decided to wash their hands of the whole thing. The internists thought it was a bitter pill to swallow, and the plastic surgeons said, this puts a whole new face on the matter. While the podiatrists thought it was a step forward, but the urologists felt the scheme would not hold water. The anesthesiologists thought the whole idea was a gas, and the cardiologists just didn't have the heart to say no. In the end, it was the proctologists who left the decisions up to some asses in Washington. (laughs) And that sort of fits into the last one that was sent to us before that as well. Here's here's an actual actual one from Tim. Didn't mention Tim. Uh, This one is uh, uh, another Russian joke that he had sent us. And I'm not sure if I got around to reading the other one. In case I didn't, I might do it again here. But I know this one's a new one. And he says, uh, there's a Russian commissar. He's you know, visiting at a Soviet collective farm. And as part of his routine expansion, or, uh, inspection, sorry, uh, he demands one of the workers, he goes up to him and he says, hey, so how's the crop this year? Oh, we had a fantastic harvest, says the worker. Many, many potatoes. So many potatoes, in fact, that if you piled them up in the sky, they would touch the feet of God. Well, there is no God, comrade, the commissioner scolded. And the worker says, well, Commissar, there aren't any potatoes either. (laughs) Okay, that's a a joke from sort of a country that uh, has shortages and everything, something we might be getting used to when we get into the uh, coming year as they send all of our (laughs) money elsewhere. Oh, these these couple are kind of funny too. Um, Someone sent me a whole bunch of management courses, certain lessons you can learn in management told in different ways. Well, here's one of the lessons, a management course lesson, and this one is kind of cute. A man is getting into the shower just as his wife is finishing up her shower, and then the doorbell rings. So the wife quickly wraps herself in a towel, and she runs downstairs. When she opens the door, there's the next-door neighbor. Before she says a word, the neighbor says, I'll give you $800 to drop that towel. So she thinks about it for a minute, and she drops her towel, standing there in front of the neighbor, and after a few seconds, he hands her 800 bucks, and he leaves. She wraps up the towel, goes back upstairs. 
And when she gets into the washroom, her husband says, Who's that? Oh, it was uh, our next-door neighbor, Bob. Oh, says the husband. Did he say anything about the $800 he owes me? (laughs) Moral of the story? If you share critical information pertaining to credit and risk with your shareholders in time, you may be in a position to prevent avoidable exposure. (laughs) That was a good one. I really enjoyed that one. Here's a couple that were sent that... um, Okay, these these are joke jokes, but um, they're kind of, they're 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 hilarious because these are not re- these are actual things that people said in a court of law, and apparently they were excerp- excerpted from a book called the Disorder in the American Courts, and these things are actually s- taken out of the transcripts in the court, word for word, and I guess somebody published them because they thought they were kind of funny. And uh, so I just got a couple. I've got time, about two minutes maybe, for a few of these exchanges. Some of them are pretty cute. One of them is the attorney asks the witness, uh, are you sexually active? And uh, she replies, no, I just lie there. <laughs> Remember, these are real court, uh, court um, you know, transcripts. Attorney, uh, what gear were you in at the moment of the impact? Witness, Gucci sweats and Reeboks. <laughs> Here's one. Attorney, this myasthenia, or sorry, this, this myasthenia gravis, does it affect your memory at all? Witness, yes. And in what way does it affect your memory, says the attorney. Witness, I forget. Attorney, you forget? Can you give us an example of something you forgot? <laughs> okay. Attorney, uh, here's another one. The youngest son, the 20-year-old, how old is he? Witness, uh, he's 21. <laughs> Not even the right one. And uh, attorney, here's one. Uh, How was your first marriage terminated? Witness, uh, by death. Attorney, and by whose death was it terminated? (laughs) And, uh, oh, here's one. Attorney, is your appearance here this morning pursuant to a deposition notice which I sent to your attorney? Witness, no, this is how I dress when I go to work. (laughs) And to leave you with this one, this is the last one for the year. This one is... uh, uh, this actually happened in a court of law, hard to believe, but it goes like this. Attorney, doctor, before you perform the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Witness, no. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then, it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? No. How can you be so sure, doctor? Well, says the doctor, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. Ah, says the attorney, I see, but could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? To which the witness replies, Yes, it is possible that he could have been alive and practicing law. (laughs) Great ender for the year, and I guess that's where we're going to have to leave it. So, I hope uh, you have a great and happy new year, and then we will see you coming in the new year. I'm not even sure when it's going to be, but you can check our website for the exact date, probably be the first or second week after the holiday season. So we'll leave that with you, and we hope again that you will, again, join us in the New Year's, and uh, we'll see you again in the New Year. So do take care, and until then, till next year, be right, do right, act right, think right, and stay right. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be I hate winter. I like Christmas because I hang mistletoe from my belt buckle, but I don't like, uh... There you go, there you go.